This is Transparency, a podcast by Gender Dysphoria Alliance, hosted by Aaron Kimberly and Aaron Terrell. Each week we'll be joined by people who have personal or professional experience with gender dysphoria and physical transition. We'll also discuss how our trans experiences relate to the concept of gender identity. Join us for a compassionate yet heterodox approach to the question of trans. All right, welcome back to Transparency, everyone. And I'm here with my co-host, Darren Terrell. And uh, our guest today is Stillman Cray, who's author of Being Transgender is Not Normal. Welcome to the show, Stillman. Hello. Um, I, I'm looking forward to talking to you about the book, but maybe before we uh, launch into that, if we could just get to know you a little bit, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I'm a bit, of, a bit of an anomaly but um, I'm a writer and that's been my salvation over the years. And specifically where gender is concerned, when I was 18, I legally changed my name. And then when I was 20, I underwent surgery in Canada from female to male. And I've been on hormones for going on 18 years. And I briefly tried to stop hormones three years ago because I wanted to see how I felt and if I wanted to go off of them, because I did, I did not like being on them. However, that did not go well. So I chose the lesser of two evils and went back on testosterone. Okay. The title of your book, um, you know, is, is pretty bold and straightforward. What, what, um, what was your inspiration to write it? Yes, my, my title was intentional as I express in the booklet because I wanted to grab people's attention. And my, my reason for writing it was twofold. One, I wanted to offer a cautionary note to anyone who is questioning their gender or thinks that yes, all of a sudden they feel they should be the opposite sex um, because it's not, it's not a quick decision. It doesn't come to you in a month or even six months. And, um, I feel it is my duty as a writer, first and foremost, to um, compose something of this nature. And honestly, I wanted to um, be able to help others avoid suffering, if at all possible. So, you know, with a cautionary tale, is that related to your own transition? Or are there aspects of your transition that you would have done differently or that you re regret? Yes, it's that aspect and also the whole gender craze, as I term it, that is occurring right now. It's, um, I, I, if you, and I know you've read the booklet, I like to um, imbue humor. I think it's very important to laugh about these things because honestly, when you step way back from it, which I do, I'm very philosophical, it's just, it's really complete lunacy, the whole thing. And I laugh about it and I can because I, you know, I've changed genders and um, it's fine it, to, to laugh about. There's nothing wrong or wrong. Um, but to answer your question specifically, do I regret tra transitioning? No. However, I do have some regrets. And I wish I had known someone like myself when I was 15, 16. And I don't say that in an egotistical way. I don't mean it that way but someone who was prepared to ask me very concrete and hard questions. Because 
all I could think about when I was an adolescent was, okay, I want the surgery. I want to change genders and that will make everything okay. And then I'll be free. And at that age, it's, a, it's very simple to say, but um, it's profound. You don't know what you don't know. And I wish I could go back and shake myself, slap myself and say, pay attention because down the road, you're going to, you know, your perspective is drastically going to change with experience. And so in terms of my regrets, one, I wish I had understood what I was getting into and my reasons for transitioning. I wish potentially that I had had children before transitioning, that I ex had experienced more just as the other gender, maybe experiment, experimented more um, prior to crossing over. Um, and those are things that you, you can't go back and reclaim because as you get older, you just, things change. And um, I do sometimes question, would I have been able to stay how I was with some alterations? And that's a question, you know, that will never be answered. And you said three years ago that you uh, you went off testosterone for a while. Can I ask if this isn't too too um, intimate? But have you had a hysterectomy? No, I have not. Okay. Okay. Yes. So, um, oh, go on. No, no, no question is too personal. So feel free to ask anything. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. So when you so when you made that decision, what were you what were you thinking? What were you um, kind of uh, what was the intention when you decided to to cease testosterone? Sure. I was very depressed. I had, I still do, but I suffered depression for many, many years. And I was linking it to the testosterone and just the spikes in mood change. And right now I can tell you that it definitely, that the hormones impact the mood and they cause, for me at least, because I haven't had a hysterectomy, they cause spikes and they'll send me to the depths of depression if my levels are not normal. So it's really, it's exhausting and it's a, it's a royal pain in the ass, literally, um, when you have to jab yourself with a needle. But my intentions at that time in 2019, I wanted to see how I felt. So I went off of them. I know they say not to, but I decided, you know, I'm not going to taper it. That's just going to really uh, annoy my body more. So I went off cold turkey and um, I, what I remember is the exhaustion, the fatigue in my body it was like all the strength was draining from my body and that lasted oh probably a good three three weeks and then I felt good I felt like huh this is interesting but it I was praying certain things wouldn't return the monthly course and um for six weeks I was fine but then then that showed up again and I started to have cramps and all that and I was like nope I am not messing with this again. I do not miss it and I don't want it. So at that point, I started the hormones, injecting them again, and that was that. However, I did have a major, you could equate it to um, meltdown because of the hormonal changes. Um, it just, I want to emphasize that, and people know this, people, you know, women who have been pregnant, the shifts in hormones it's, it's dangerous. It's nothing to mess with. 
Um, so I could, it was very difficult to control myself during that about for two weeks. I was just very, um, a hair trigger. Anything would set me off. Um, so that was not fun, but it was necessary. I do not regret it. I needed to know. And um, so that's why I did it. Okay. And uh, what dose are you on? Sure. I've been having to play with that recently because my levels were off the chart. But typically I take between 0.4 and 0.5 cc. Weekly? Yes. Okay. And I was always very conservative with the amount. You mentioned, um, you know, you wish that harder questions had been asked. I mean, what, what, I mean these days, as, as you're aware, I mean, they're going in the direction of asking fewer and fewer questions. What, um, what questions do you feel would have been beneficial for someone to have asked you when you were first considering starting hormones? Sure. I, um, I list these in the booklet on page 12. Um, I'm not going to read through them, obviously, right now, but I wish someone had asked me why. That's the biggest question. Why do you want to change? Not, and not just, oh, you feel uncomfortable comfortable in your skin. Why? You have to dig for the answer. It's not just a general response. And I've spoken with some adolescent individuals who are either confused or they suddenly identified as trans, and their response is very general. They're not being specific enough. And so that's why I caution when questioning. Um, it's very important to get to the heart of the matter. But um, another specific question beyond why would have been, um, you know, do I, do, you, do I understand what it entails and that this is lifelong? It's, it's a marathon. You know, it's not something you just sprint through or you cut your hair and then it's done it's um there's always going to be reminders and and this is one of the things i stress in the booklet i think not all but some individuals may have the misconception that by transitioning they're becoming the opposite gender and that's not the case you will never ever ever be the opposite gender i will never ever ever be male I look at myself as a third gender, a hybrid. Yes, I present myself as a man, but I will never be male biologically. And a person needs to accept that before, you know, embarking down this road. Yeah, I, I use that term as well, uh, hybrid. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I like it. It's, um, it's kind of light, you know? It's kind of yes. cool, kind of light. <laughs> yeah. Ex exactly. But although that's obviously the, the, the exact opposite of, of what we um, want, you know, we were trying to trying to stress how big of a deal this is and how dangerous it can be and how, yeah. So, but I do like that contrast of, of, of hybrid. Yes. Um, I like to look at it as we're, we're, it's, it's, we're evolving and, um, but I, I'll, I won't say any more on that. <laughs> Yeah, I thought your list of questions in, in the book was quite, quite good. Um, I mean, you've got, let's see, I'm, just, I'm looking at here. So you've got like, I think it's 19 questions that are meant to just help with someone's um, self-exploration 
to go a little a little deeper. So, so you haven't really posed these questions as necessarily assessment questions, but just questions that people can ask themselves to really examine what their motivations for transition are. And um, I mean, you cover things like um, the question number three, is my physical body the issue or is my psychological concept of gender the problem? So, so very, um, a lot of good reflective questions. How yes. many, how much of this reflection did you do before your own transition? I'm pausing for a reason. Zero. I didn't, yeah, zero. I did not ask myself these questions. I had blinders on. And yes, I had to see therapists and they wrote me two letters. At that time, there was something called the Harry Benjamin Standards of Care, which you had to meet. But I was in such denial and I don't mind telling you details about it. I never once looked at my body, not until the night before surgery. And at that point, I wrote about this in another book. Um, my sister scrubbed my chest down because I wouldn't touch myself. I wouldn't wash myself. So the night before my surgery, she scrubbed my chest down and I had dead skin. Um, but I would not deal with what was happening. I did not look at my body before I had surgery. And there's a problem with that. That's a big, big red flag. And I don't blame anyone. I've never, ever blamed anyone. But at that time, if someone had said to me, oh, we're going to check you into a clinic because you're not ready, I probably would have hated them, obviously. Um, but it probably would have been to my advantage. So no, I didn't ask any of these questions. And even after my surgery, which is common, I had major depression for several months. Mm -hmm. It wasn't because I was mourning the surgery or what I lost physically. I, so I wanna make that clear. I was glad um, about the surgery, but I was not prepared. It didn't alleviate my social, social distress. Socially, I was completely arrested. I went from 12 to 20 overnight and I had this idea that I just want to have the surgery so I can be a boy. But I realized, oh shit, I'm in college. I'm 20. I'm expected to be a man. And I was like, I don't know what I want. I don't know how to do this. So it was, I ignored all the social aspects and I just buried myself in academics. And um, it was it was hard to say the least. That's putting it mildly. I remember that early in transition that it, it's like we go through another puberty and thing or yeah, it, through adolescence again, in, including a certain amount of re-socialization. And depending on what age you are when you transition, you know, it, it adds to the awkwardness because when you're read as, you know, a, let's say a 30-year-old um, male, people expect you to function like a 30-year-old male. And we have to, yes. right? Whereas if, if you were behaving a certain way as a teenager that was typical for teenagers, you know, it, that's how people would understand it. But when you're behaving that way as a 30 year old, it's, uh, it, it's confusing for other people. Yes, very much so. And um, it compromises dating and just even, you know, it's, it's, it's hard. In hindsight, what what would you say? Like, what what would you say was your reason for transitioning? I was just so um, uncomfortable in my skin and unhappy. 
However, I had not explored other reasons for that. I'm not saying that ultimately I wouldn't have transitioned, but I wish I had explored other reasons. And by nature and by profession, I am a writer and writers are historically, they, they have depression. So I had that on top of it. And um, I believed at that time that transitioning would make me happy or content, I should say because I always identified with male characters in books. And I just didn't, honestly, I didn't want to have to deal with what women go through. I, I, it, um, it pissed me off. I was like, I don't, I don't know if you want me to cuss or whatnot, but I was like, F no, I'm not going to endure this for the next, you know, 30 years or whatnot. And um, it was defiance against that, against nature, didn't seem fair. And I wasn't going to put up with it. Um, and I also, so I wanted, I wanted things to be easier. And so I felt if I were male that they would be in terms of physical aspects. And I didn't feel, um, I did not feel very confident as a female. And um, I, I have examined that over the years, why? And I wish, like I said, I wish I'd had um, some very strong female role models who would have said, hey, let's look at this. Let's examine it before you, you know, you make this leap. No one's saying you can't do it, but let's really sit down and talk about it. My mother was always very supportive. I don't deny that, but um, she didn't know what to ask. She took me to as many counselors as, as she could, but they didn't know about this back then. Not enough. I was, as I said, I was an anomaly. It wasn't the norm. When you said that you, you, you were basically, uh, it was an act of defiance against, against being, or against being a woman. What do you, and you said you didn't want to put up with this. Like, what do you, what was this? What was so oh. negative to you about the concept of being a woman? Sure. Yes. I'm glad you asked that so I could clarify it. Sometimes I go, go off on a tangent to be concrete. It was, the physical aspects of the monthly course, that's how I always phrase it, the Red Sea, the cycle, and um, having breasts. I wasn't going to tote that baggage around. I was like, no, I, I didn't like having that. It just, it wasn't, you know, people who, um, females who, you know, truly are content in their bodies, they're usually excited about that and everything and entering womanhood. And I was like, hell no, this is not for me. I don't want it. There's nothing attractive about it to me. And, um, but I sit there and I say, well, did that make me male just because I didn't want those two things, you know, the monthly cycle and breasts. And no, that doesn't mean that I'm male. So sometimes I, over the years, I honestly feel I'm more androgynous, however, androgynous emotionally. And I think most people are in all fairness, but I still prefer to present myself as male. That's my comfort zone. My mother has even asked me, she, she said, do you want to go back? And I'm like, no, even if I wanted to, I can't, but I don't want to. I, I do regret, I'll, I'll just say this. Um, I do regret not experiencing having children, but as I say in my booklet, it would have been for selfish reasons. I just wanted the experience not saying that I wanted to be a parent per se, 
Um, so for whatever reason, here I am, childless, and that's that. So it was, it was very much based in your body. It wasn't, it wasn't a social issue. It wasn't like um, kind, of, kind of this concept of like patriarchy and misogyny. You're, you're, not, you're not saying that that was, that was a motivator. It was all physically rooted in your biology, your discomfort. Correct. Yeah, there was okay. nothing about yeah, the social roles, nothing in that vein or nope. And, and yet you did say that, you know, what you had identified as male characters in books. And so was there a social aspect at all to, to how you saw yourself as being more male than female? I just thought I felt less, I felt less vulnerable hmm. identifying as male. I, it, as an adolescent, I was very timid and I didn't speak. I never spoke in school. And um, I liked the male characters because, again, I, in my mind, I related it to freedom, freedom from those physical aspects, freedom. They could go running and they didn't have to wear a bra or whatnot. And um, I envied that. I remember staring at the boys when I was in high school and they were coming back from practice and I envied that. I just wanted that freedom. Um, and like I said, there was definitely dysphoria going on. I, at that time, I, there weren't any videos. You know, the internet wasn't even that active, thankfully. I'm not a big advocate of the internet and all the social media. Um, so this evolved completely on its own, in uninfluenced. There was no outside influence. Mm -hmm. My family didn't want this for me. I didn't have any friends, so there was no peer pressure. I didn't read a book about gender dysphoria. Um, so in, instinctively, it was, it was innate. I knew on some level, but I didn't have a name for it. And again, to uh, speak to what you were saying, when I was reading books and identifying with male characters, it related to that sense of physical freedom and um, just physically being stronger and less vulnerable. How old were you when you first, um, I mean, you probably didn't have, I mean, none of us had the language for it at the time, but um, how old were you, looking back, how old do you think you were when you first experienced that sense of, of dysphoria? There were signs when I was, I remember I was 12 and all of a sudden, I just wanted to start buying boys clothes, which my mother let me. And, but I felt like there was something wrong in that. I felt, uh, I guess, a twinge guilty about it. And I didn't know why. So that was when I was 12. And then, then that was fine. And thankfully, I'm so grateful for it. I hit puberty very, very late. So I think my knowledge of what was going on was delayed for that reason. And then I became very dysphoric when I was 15. And I still didn't have a name for it. I was just uncomfortable. And watching films or whatever, I always identified with the young male characters and I wanted that and I didn't know why. So from, I would say late 15, 16 onward, things really went downhill and I just, I shut down. And um, I have no qualms about saying it. I mean, I was just, I was freakish. I was weird. I wore the same clothes. I wouldn't go out of the house except to school. I just wanted to hide because I was so uncomfortable. And the irony of it is I attracted more attention 
because I would be, it would be summer and it'd be 90 degrees. I'd be wearing a coat, a heavy coat, duct tape, layers of shirts. And it was just, it was ridiculous. What were you like before um, adolescence? Um, I was very uh, rambunctious and outgoing and um, never had a lot of friends, but you know, one or two. I was in younger years, I was very, very talkative. Um, and, but even my mother has said it, you know, there weren't huge ear markers or indications that, oh, you know, he definitely should be the opposite gender or wants to be. There were some subtle signs and I even remember them, but it wasn't blaring um, because I, there are some children who adamantly know, you know, when they're four or five. I was just going to say, how does, uh, for, for, how did sexuality play into this at all? Or did it, did it have any bearing Were were you attracted to, it doesn't sound like you probably had any, any mental bandwidth with that kind of dysphoria to kind of think about, you know, who you were, you were interested in. I could be wrong, right. there, but yeah. No, I'm glad you asked that, that it took an enormous toll on that, um, aspect of my life. And you're right. I didn't have any bandwidth or, um, reference point I used to which is normal but I didn't understand it I had like a crush on a female teacher and at that age you know that's typical but I still wasn't identifying it I didn't have any boyfriend boyfriends or girlfriends my age I didn't feel that attraction I was just I wasn't ready for that because I was socially arrested and so emotionally there was no connection and even in early early college there were some girls who were interested in me, but I didn't feel male. I wasn't aggressive like you should be. And when I say aggressive, just I wasn't even interested. And um, it really impacted and impeded how I navigated things. And um, I wrote about this extensively in my uh, autobiography. And it goes into the amount of pain um, that I was in, but I wasn't cognizant of it. Um, and when I finally did meet someone and it was like, um, it was like a dam breaking and I finally realized how lonely I had been. And, um, it was not pleasant to say the least. It's funny. If you're not aware of being lonely, you can endure it. But once, um, you become cognizant of it, it's, um, it's, it was agony. And I use that word. Uh, deliberately it was it was agony the social isolation yeah I I yeah I usually don't it, it's it's strange for me to talk about all this because I you know I, I seldom do and it's I'm at such a distance from it now and yet I'm not because it's it's formed who I am so it's, it's like that dichotomy it's a disconnect and it's um it's just different what has the reception to your book been? It's been good. I want to promote it more. I've just been busy at the moment. Um, I shared it with a psychologist colleague of mine, and um, he really um, supported it. And he's been giving it to some of his clients who are gender dysphoric. And he said it's very important that people read this. Um, and he, he noticed my humor in it. And um, 
So I'm glad about that because yes, there is supposed to be a level of levity. Yeah. I'm surprised you haven't had more, not that you should, but I'm surprised you haven't had more backlash from it just because a lot, you know, it seems like in this particular political climate, what you're suggesting and proposing in the book is, is pretty much the opposite of what the activists are pushing for. You know, that they're sort of pushing for full steam ahead and, and minimal assessment, minimal, you know, questioning and, and digging. Um, so it's very, it's a very superficial way of, of doing care um, and seems to lead to a very pretty superficial understanding of oneself. Uh, but even going on, you know, further in your book, you're talking about, you know, bathrooms and stuff and not using um, opposite sex bathrooms, which again is sort of the opposite of, of what activists are pushing for. I mean, what, what would you like to see moving forward? If, if you were in charge of activism, how, how would you be doing this differently than what activists are currently doing? Sure. I, um, yeah, I, I am not an activist and I've never gravitated in that direction. And so I take, and I never make absolute statements. So, you know, there'll always be some people, I don't wanna say all of them or none of them, but um, many activists, they're not even trans. And so I think it's imperative like you're doing now to speak with people who have lived experience, their primary sources because they are trans or have lived that way for many years. And um, I get agitated and annoyed when a minority wants the majority to cater to them. And I use the word cater. I do not feel that society at large needs to make major accommodations for me or my lifestyle. Yes, they need to be able to accept us. There shouldn't be, you know, anything demonizing or hateful. I, but in terms of bathrooms, I don't want there to be a third bathroom or, you know, to be allowed to use the opposite gender bathroom if you have not fully transitioned. You are inviting, you know, issues in. If you, if you still look like a man or a woman and you haven't crossed over, then by no means should you be going into the opposite gender bathroom. Um, in high school, I never used the restroom not once. I could have gone to the nurse's station and said, hey, can I use the bathroom? But I didn't. And um, that was a bit difficult, awkward, but I survived. I didn't have any bladder issues. And so I feel like, to get back to your question, I just get annoyed. People, you know, they're demanding. I don't like when people demand tolerance. You cannot force tolerance. And the more you demand something, you're going to separate and there's going to be this division, which there is in society. And so in terms of activism, it's just this push to accept it. You must, like it's being shoved down the throat. This is the norm. Normalizing it is what really bothers me. And that's where all my, I guess you would say, you know, alarms go off. I'm like, no, there's something wrong with this. There's an agenda behind it. And because being trans is not normal. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I want to emphasize that. I'm not saying it's bad, but it's not typical. It's not normal. And it is wrong, in my opinion, to normalize it. Um, it's not okay to, you know, just, oh, yeah, that, that sounds like something cool, something fun. I want to, you know, see if I'm that or let me try it out. Because um, it's, it's nothing of that nature. 
And so, yes, I, I do take some unction with many activists. Um, I think they get so caught up with the idea that they're myopic. They don't step back and realize that this is a blip in time, but it's going to have repercussions. And we're going to see it, you know, five, 10 years down the road. And um, that's why I say in my book, wise men take pause. You need to step back from it and examine what's really going on. And um, so. That's why I, I, I take so much issue with the fact that there is a trans pride flag. I mean, I've, I take so many issues with, with trans activism in general, but, but that, that one symbol kind of um, uh, just, just carries a lot uh, for me is like everything that you were just describing. Um, this is a very serious um, thing and it, it's rooted in a very deep discomfort with one's body. And that's, that's a weird, not that it's just not a good experience. Having dysphoria is, is, is not something that should be celebrated or um, uh, uh, praised and, and, and going to such extensive lengths as, you know, the exogenous hormones and the surgeries right. on perfectly healthy bodies. It's like this, this is a very extreme thing that we're doing based on a, on a, on a, on a, on a, on a strange psychological uh, impulse and to, and to have like to call it beautiful and to have the flag and the marches and the, it's just like the things are that the, those two concepts are such an in dire contrast that um yeah yeah it's pretty upsetting to me yes i i completely agree with that and yes i even mentioned this i i think it's hilarious i i don't condone having these pride days do straight people you know who are biologically female male do they go around having pride days it's, it's ridiculous. I, I do not, and I say this in the booklet, I do not feel pride as a transgender person. It's, there's no pride in that. It's just, I, I am who I am. And that's that. And um, I don't need to wave a flag and, you know, hope th th celebrate it. Like you were saying, it's, it's nothing to be celebrated. If you want to celebrate something, you celebrate accomplishments or, you know, personal attributes, things of that nature. Yeah, and I think the celebration of it is is obviously what's caused a lot of this, um, you know, the rapid onset and whatnot. You know, um, uh, you know, it, it's something fun and cool to belong to. It, it gives you, um, yeah, yeah, not not only you know, kind of a, a like a personality uh, quirk, something interesting about yourself, but it's like a righteous cause, um, to, you know, to align yourself with as well. When when did you kind of get get a glimpse of the uh, what we now call Rajdi and that phenomenon. Sure. Um, about, gosh, when I started to go off hormones three years ago, I made, a, I made a couple videos of them and I posted them. And so uh, that was on YouTube and I got a lot of responses. And um, some, there were a couple, a handful, young people who were angry and they said, oh, you're not really trans. How can you say this? And I responded to them diplomatically. And, but it was interesting to see how immediately their backbone went up because they didn't like hearing what someone else had to say that, you know, it's not cool. There may be issues down the road. Um, so at that point I was like, huh, this is curious. Um, and I pulled those videos because I just, there was no reason to leave them up. So that was three years ago. And then 
more recently, a year ago, I read Abigail Schreier's um, Irreversible Damage, specifically about this, you know, uh, rapid onset of gender dysphoria in young girls. And I read the, the book and I took no issue with it. I wrote her a letter and said, you know, this is, this is good. It's well-written, well-documented. And I know she, there, she had had issues with some places pulling it because they didn't want it out there. And I was like, that's not okay. There's a problem with that, that censorship. And um, so then I started to look into it more. And then I came across, you know, your platform. And so, and then of course it's, we're bombarded with the media every day there's a new headline about trans this trans that and it's so ridiculous it's just the more you try to you know expose the population to it and everything it's it's a form of indoctrination it is and um i do not you know get sucked into those news feeds or whatnot and a lot of the times headlines as we know they're just sensationalizing so again you have to dig for what's really true and um it's just, it's honestly, when you get right down to it, it's sad. It's sad. This is what humans do with their energy, their time and their energy. And um, that's why I feel it is my role as a writer, first and foremost, secondary as someone who is a hybrid to, you know, point this out and along with others such as yourself and draw attention to the fact that this is just ridiculous and we need to pull back from it and really examine it and now i'm just rambling so i'll be quiet <laughs> <laughs> no it's very good yeah, it's definitely a case of pendulum pendulum swinging too far i mean i, I can understand um you know not wanting people to to hate us or or for there to be any risk of you know, rejection from people, loss of jobs, loss of income um, or anything like that. But in right. the effort to not pathologize trans, you're right that it's kind of swung to this opposite extreme of, of celebrating something that, and I, I would agree with you that trans isn't, isn't normal, which isn't the same thing as saying that it's, that it's something bad and, and awful. Exactly. I'm reminder of the, Benjamin Boyce tweeted, it's just a great quote, uh, is in our, in our rush to normalize the exception, we've demonized the rule. And I think that's that was so perfectly put and so accurate. Yes, that is very, mm -hmm, very accurate. And it's funny you mentioned him. I spoke with him three years ago. And um, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, were you were you on uh, on his show? I was. Yes. Oh, nice. I'll check that out. We'll link it too. But um, yeah, I've, I've, I've changed even since then <laughs> in three years. Yeah, I think, I think all of our opinions do kind of morph and like the more information we, we get on this, on this issue. Um, yeah, my, 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 my mind has changed a lot, uh, even just in the last year since we started this. Yeah, it's, um, and, and you're, you're in Canada, correct? The other, Aaron Kimberly is, oh, I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm in the States. That that's right. That's right. Yes. Okay. Yes. You said uh, you had your surgery in Canada, if I'm remembering correctly. That is correct. And um, yeah, I it's it's interesting because gosh, that it feels to me like another person's life. It does, 
And I don't mind if you link this to it. As I said, I have an autobiography and I'm not saying this to plug my book. It's so people can understand because I give a blow by blow of what I went through, not just in terms of surgery, but emotionally and otherwise. And the book's called Who Has Known Heights. And um, thinking back about that time and the surgery, I mean, it's, it was very difficult socially, um, just being seen by the surgeon beforehand. He was very nice. I don't mind saying it. it's Pierre Brassard. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he was great. Uh, but I know even after the surgery, he kind of took pause because I was such, I was so shut down and closed off. And so I wasn't, you know, celebrating, oh my gosh, it's done. I, you know, um, so I think he was concerned. He didn't voice that, but I could read it. Maybe he was thinking, oh my gosh, did I, you know, was I supposed to do the surgery? Um, is he going to be okay? But, um, you know, I, I, I was fine. But as I said, I had major depression afterward, um, which you can after surgery. And um, I just, I never, um, I just, it, it took a long time. It was very tedious to even sort through things or start to talk about them. I didn't want to. I was still in denial even after the surgery. And that um, really impacted me socially. I can't stress that enough. And you, so you were 20 years old and you were in college. What did the, I mean, what did the rest of your, I mean, that's still technically adolescence, right? Like what, Yes. I mean, what, what, what after that, you know, the next, next three or four years of your life, did you kind of come around to being, um, did you kind of come out of your shell a little bit more when you were perceived as, as male or, or, or did you kind of continue on that same kind of trajectory as when you were a teenager? I started to change, um, when I had a, an attraction to a woman, that's when things really escalated and I fell in love with her. And that's when I had to take a look at everything. And even then, it was just excruciating because I didn't tell her right off the bat. No one knew about me um, at work. I had a part-time job at that time during college. And so no one knew. And I desperately wanted to tell someone, but I was afraid to. And I let her find out. I didn't tell her specifically. And her acceptance was monumental to me because I, even to this day, I still struggle with it. I had never accepted it in myself. And if, of course, if you can't accept yourself, how, how can you expect others to accept you? And um, so at that time, I had to come to terms with my sexuality, um, my social role, and just psychologically, so much was going on, and um, it was overwhelming. And I still suffered from major depression. And um, I don't know where I was going with it, but that, to answer your question, that's when it came about. Um, that's mm -hmm. when I started to change. But even then, it took many more years for me to finally become vocal and be able to talk about these things. And, and I can't attribute it to going to counseling. Yes, I saw different counselors over the years, but honestly, it was because I was alone. I was lonely and I just wanted some connection. But ultimately, those counselors, even if they meant well, they they didn't they couldn't help. They didn't do me any good. Um, 
So, you know, I had to sort through it myself. And I did that by writing, whether I consciously knew that that's what I was doing. That's what happened. And um, that's what saved me. Always the need, the compulsion to write. Were you writing even as a young person? Yes. I have my first poem, I think, back when I was 10. And I still have that poem. And um, I wish I had it in front of me because it's short and I could read it to you. Maybe I'll share it later. But it, it's interesting because it sums up a hell of a lot of what was going on, even though I wasn't conscious of it. You still write poetry? Yes. Yes, I'm a, I definitely... Um, Poetry for me as a writer, it's like, um, it's my holy text. And I even refer to other poems sometimes because it creates this universal emotion. You know, it could be, it could be a hundred years ago, but someone could still be writing about, you know, the first time they fell in love or the death of someone. And you know that you connect to that person because they're feeling, feeling that pain or that, you know, wonderful experience. And that's what I love. It tra- poetry transcends time. And um, I'll share this little tidbit. I don't want to go on and on because I know you have to edit this. But um, there was a time in my life, and I write about this in Who Has Known Heights, when the loneliness was so unbearable. And I remember sometimes I would fall asleep with a paperclip in my palm, and I would just trace the paperclip. And that's that. I would focus on that. And that's how I would, I guess, endure, you could say. Um, so for me, it's been a long, a long trek in endurance. And you can't, you know, you can't teach endurance. You can read about it in a book, but it's not the same. You can sit across from a counselor. It's not the same. It's just living day to day and different things that happen. That's a good, uh, that's a good tip. I like, I like that idea of, of tracing the shape of a paper clip with your, with your hand. That's, that's a, that's an interesting technique. Yes. It's because it's, it's kind of elliptical and it, you know, you just go round and round and it's, um, it's calming. The other thing you said in, in your book, you dedicated a chapter, um, you're quite adamant that, that children should not be medically transitioned, um, what, what, right. are, what, what are your biggest concerns with, with early life transition? Uh, I have a couple. One, at that age, children don't know what they're relinquishing. So what if they want to have children one day? It's messing up, you know, their sperm or their eggs. Um, and at a, when they're children, you can't necessarily, you know, take that and freeze it because they're not fully developed. And also brain development and mood swings. And again, at that age, you don't understand your sexuality and what you want, you know, from a partner or even who you may be attracted to. Ultimately, you're just too young to know, Okay, you may you may be uncomfortable in your body and you may innately understand that. Yes, I want to be the opposite gender. That's fine. No one's saying you have to deny that and we're going to force you to live as you are. I don't mean that. But you need to wait and that, that can be agony when you're young, you know, that can be difficult because at that age you're impatient, you know, feels like time, there is no time. Um, but it's, it's critical not to rush 
I emphasize that in the booklet. Um, if you ever do something out of fear or rushing, then it's not a good decision. That's a really good point. If you do something out of fear or rushing, it's not a good decision. Yeah, you're not really in a place to make a decision in that in that headspace. No. Yeah, it seems like the sexuality piece is is important. And and I remember when they used to ask questions about sexuality on on the screeners or assessments that um, there were people in the community that really pushed back on that, um, maybe out of out of distrust for clinicians, they just, you know, interpreted those questions as, as prying or that the clinician was, um, you'd hear things like, oh, that clinician's such a pervert. They keep asking about my sexual fantasies, but they, right. they don't understand that the purpose of those questions, it's, it's not for the benefit of the clinician. It's for the benefit of, of the patient to, to have answers to those things, because it would demonstrate that you've thought through those things. Exactly. And that's, I'm glad you said that because a lot of them, they haven't been. If, if you cannot verbally, you know, express yourself um, in concrete terms, then you're not ready. And sexuality seems to be, um, I think, you know, I think there's a lot of reasons why people end up regretting transition, but issues of sexuality definitely seem to be a theme amongst some um, who regret transition, whether, whether they detransition or not. Um, you know, if they haven't fully explored that aspect of themselves and then make permanent alterations to their bodies and then realize that their body no longer fits with, you know, what they would like from a partnership and sexuality. Yes. And that, that would be a tragedy. Yep. To do that. Um, I, like I said, I still have some, some minor regrets uh, regarding sexuality, but fortunately nothing that was, you know, where you couldn't, um, to a certain extent, go back and find out or experiment. Um, so I'm, I'm being very cryptic on that, but um, yes, I would not advocate for someone, you know, doing bottom surgery without experiencing what they want sexually. That, that would be just a tragedy. It's happening. Yeah. It's happening yeah. a lot now. And that's terrifying. It is. Yeah. Yeah, it is terrifying. Especially in light of, you know, that's it's 11 studies now that all say that, you know, children that experience gender dysphoria or, you know, that, that discomfort with their sex body, most of the time resolve that through the process of puberty. And it's thought that that awakening of sexuality is one of the reasons why it resolves. Um, so for the homosexual subtype, for example, you know, when they, when their sexuality awakens and um, and they're chasing after it's a gay male that's chasing after boys or or gay female chasing after girls that that is one of the things that for a lot of people actually resolves the gender dysphoria and these kids aren't being given a chance to to do that right and I I think and you're you know this I think it's heavily um, tied to the amount of time the younger generation spending on social media and not being able to connect in person or not having, you know, those um, abilities to do so because they just, they haven't learned them. They're so isolated and they live on their phones or their computers. And that is just, I am so grateful that I came of age before technology hit big. I'm not a Luddite. I don't mean that, but it's just, it's separated us so much 
which is ironic because here we are, we're connected, you know, more <laughs> thousands of miles away. I recognize that, but it's this, that we have a purpose for this meeting yeah. and, you know, we're not just idly spending time, you know, trolling through things online. And um, it's just, it's, it's impacted attention spans, critical thinking, and it's, it's not healthy. And we're seeing the repercussions. And it's even Abigail Schreier wrote about this through research in her book about, you know, first time sexual experiences or lack thereof, how they're just, you know, being impacted by social media and there's um, become a disinterest in it. And that, that's sad. It really is. It seems to be a theme of, of like a larger theme of disembodiment and disconnection throughout, throughout the world um, in I remember reading a couple of years ago an article about what's happening with young people in Japan that that their young people aren't interested in in relationships. They um, the boys um, are hiring prostitutes or or using um, like you know the sex robots. Um, they've got kind of these brothels, I guess you could call them that, of sex robots, and you just rent out a robot, and and so they're satisfying their sexual urges through prostitution and and robots and don't have an interest in actually forming any kind of you know intimate emotional bond with anybody and they're so they're worried about this generation of young people um and what that will mean moving forward as far as you know their population and stuff because they're they're not interested in having babies they're not interested in getting married uh, it is it's a very I, it's a very isolated, disembodied way of living. Yes, it's it's detached. It um it brings to mind a short story by E. M. Forster, written gosh a hundred years ago or more, called the the Time Machine. And even at that time, he recognized a situation similar to this, where people would live in their you know their little portals, their houses, and never go out, just connect on screen. And it's as you were saying about um, the use in Japan or whatnot, it, um, it's almost like it, it, it is. It's not almost like it is. It's being emotionally stranded and cut off from just the whole spiritual aspect of being human. And when I say spiritual, I mean spirituality, not religion. Um, and why we are here as humans. And I feel like, and it's not just my feeling. I mean, this can be confirmed. You see it around you humans are becoming more robotic and that is not as nature designed. We're not supposed to sit behind a screen all day. We need human interaction in person and you need human contact. That's essential. Um, otherwise it makes for a very lonely cut off life. Yeah. Do you feel like your transition facilitated human connection? That's an interesting question. I like how you phrase that. Um, I don't know because I'm a, I, and I'm sub, it's obviously subjective. That's a hard question for me because I always, for other reasons, I've always felt like an outsider. I felt like I was left on earth waiting and I'm waiting to go home. Um, I'm an old soul, so I've never connected well, but in terms of transitioning, do I feel like it helped me to connect more? Um, yes and no, maybe emotionally, I think it developed that 
because I, I can read people and I crave a deep connection with people. I always have, I don't want something superficial and I value friendship, but it's very rare to come by. And, um, the whole element of being trans actually for me, it puts up another barrier because I never feel like I have camaraderie. I don't have the camaraderie of men. I don't have the camaraderie of women. So I'm in the no man's land of sex. And um, I've always missed having that sense of camaraderie. You know, it'd be nice at the end of the day to know metaphorically that you could say to yourself, if nothing else is right in the world, at least, you know, I'm content. I know who and what I am in terms of gender. And I have that alliance, you know, with all men or all women. And um, so it's, in that respect, it's isolating. I feel cut off. That's a, that's a good point that it puts up another barrier. Um, yeah, yeah, kind of others, others you. And that's, that's I keep going back to, to the, the, the younger um, uh, generation. Uh, for a lot of them, it, it, it seems like, it's, it's a way to belong. It's a way to form friendships and community and connection. But what they're really doing is, is ultimately isolating themselves. Yes. It's, yeah, it's counterintuitive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Their, their intentions are right. They want the connection, but the um, ultimate reason behind it, which they may not be aware of is misplaced. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the original, like when they, when they named, the model of care affirmative, I think it was intended initially to affirm those feelings, not to, not to necessarily to confirm a trans identity, but to right. affirm the feelings of, you know, what, what purpose is this serving for you um, in meeting, just meeting people where they were at and doing, doing exploration from there. Yes. Yeah. Like many things, as you know, that it's it becomes misconstrued so in terms of the term affirmation yeah it's it's they've taken it down another another vein yeah because the the amount of um emotion that like a lot of these young people that are transitioning today when they're socially motivated there's there's there is this rarely strong sort of compulsive um flavor to it that they're they're just they're in such a hurry and they want it so bad and there's so much emotion behind it and I, so I do think, you know, that's a sign that the transition is serving a, a need for them. And the need is something that has to be validated. Right. Not necessarily the solution that they've chosen for, the, for that need, because it may not actually, and that's where they need guidance, I think, because the, uh, the need for human connection is it, there's nothing wrong with that. That is a, that is a basic human need, but if someone has chosen a, a means to try to fulfill that need, that isn't, that isn't going to, I mean, they say the same thing about substance use that, that drugs are off, you know, there's a, there's a reason why people use it. It serves a purpose and it serves a need and just abstaining from the substance isn't enough. You need to kind of identify what is that need and find um, other ways of, of meeting that need. So it's, it's not, because you're never going to get buy-in if, if it's just a matter of taking away, um, taking away the substance and they're still left with an unmet need. 
you're not gonna you're not gonna be able to sustain the um, the abstinence from the substance. And I, I think for some people, yeah. transition is the same. I mean, it's it's not enough to just say no, you can't transition. I mean, you have to kind of you have to help people understand what is the need they're trying to fulfill through wanting to transition. And, and for some people, depending on what that need is and the reasonableness of their expectations, yes, it can be helpful uh, as an intervention, but it, I think a lot of people are trying to meet needs that, um, I don't know what I'm trying to say exactly. If they haven't unpacked what their needs are, you know, if they're like, like you said, if they're, if their primary need is, is connection, they'd really need to think it through in the, in that, um, that it does pose a, a set, another barrier to, to connecting with people. Exactly. It's, it's, it, it, yeah, it's, um, in one way you may think it's like coming home because th- that's the concept. Some people think, Oh, I'm going to become my, you know, my true self, my best self. But there are so many aspects of what it means to be yourself. And even if you transition, you're not changing who you are at the core. And um, I think that's important for younger individuals to realize. And they may not be able yet or ready to, you know, address that. I, I know I wasn't. I didn't know what questions to ask myself, as I said. And that's why it's, it's important yet yeah, not to rush yeah. and to know, like you were saying, know your reasons and w- why, why, why go down this road? Because honestly, transitioning, it should be the, um, it should be reserved for, you know, extreme cases. It shouldn't be the typical, okay, well, we're going to do this, this, you know, the route. I remember what it was like to be a teenager and you think, you know, these, these friends that I have now, they're going to be my friends forever. And this music that I'm listening to, I'm going to think it's awesome forever. And you're just so certain and, and have yes. such strong attachments to the things that you're interested in, but they're so fickle at the same time. And yes, as long I... as the teenagers feelings are that this is what they want and this is what they're going to want forever. You know, soon if if they don't have that, if they're doing it to fit into a peer group, they're that's not gonna that may not be their peer group forever. No matter how strongly they feel they identify with it as a young adolescent, if you know, 10 years from from now, that's not their peer group anymore. Now their transition is something that's gonna be potentially a burden for them as they're trying to interact with with people outside of that peer circle. Right. And, and, and that's, that's a very, very strong point. I don't think um, the young people today, they don't have a strong enough base within themselves. Their, their, their identity is not being formed internally. They spend so much time externally and looking at, you know, news feeds and likes on their phone and on Facebook. Facebook is probably, you know, makes me sound old. I don't utilize it though. Um, and so they live outside of themselves and they need that you know affirmation from others instead of spending time with themselves in a book or you know not online and truly truly finding out who they are and building that sense of character and that foundation 
I notice a lot of kids um, these days don't have a lot of hobbies. It's it's a lot of well, I spend all my all my, all to all my time, you know, Snapchatting on my phone or playing online video games, but nothing to to show for it at the end of the day that you know they're not. Right. I went. I mean, obviously, I'm generalizing. It's not all kids. There are kids that are in sports and stuff, but there just seem to be a growing number of kids that don't have any real hobbies. They're not creating. They're not. No, and that that's important. What we said, creating, cutting off that creativity, that just um, that cuts down something in the, you know, the human spirit because that's you. Every person needs that. That's how you expand. Otherwise, it's blunted. And um, it's just, um, it's not healthy to be on a screen day after day, even with, you know, um, online teaching and everything. And things are migrating more and more in that um, direction. And I've been on both sides of that. I've taught online and I've also taken some classes online and I, I hate it. It's just, it's not fun and it's more laborious. Yeah, I remember even in the early days of COVID, they were talking about um, the Zoom fatigue that people were feeling that, that all of their interactions and staff meetings and whatnot were on online on Zoom. And that, that I think you're, you're right, that they were saying that there's something about, even though it's the same group, maybe the same group of people that you would have been meeting with uh, in person, there's something about uh, the Zoom platform that, is this more puts more emotional labor on us or psychological labor somehow? Yes. And I definitely, because humans are, we're, you know, we have an electrical component about us for me. And I, I know this, the frequency on phones or computers, it drains me. It's like a battery and I am very taxed afterward. And so I, I monitor how long I'm on them as much as I can, because I just, I don't like it. It, it makes you unhealthy. And we know this, and there are studies done about it, but, but, you know, is mainstream doing anything, you know, to mitigate it? No. I mean, we're just moving more and more in the direction of being online, you know, having that Fitbit constantly being plugged into something. And it's, it's a distraction and it's, we're seeing it's, you know, huge effects on the young and they're suffering for it because they don't, they don't have, not all again, but many of them, they don't have coping mechanisms. And um, so, like you were saying, they're looking in other directions because they want that sense of belonging. Yeah. Something to hold on to, something to feel connected to. I see this as such a uh, societal problem right now. Like you're saying, we're just, like, we've identified this problem. We know it's bad for us. And yet, the forces of you know tech greed or whatever we just keep moving more and more things online and forcing ourselves to be more and more digitally engaged and less physically engaged what do you think i mean i could keep wondering this is like what is the other side of this like how do we how do we dig ourselves this is totally unrelated to the trans thing but like how do we dig ourselves societally out of this what's what's the solution here <clears throat> is what i just keep not specifically asking you guys i'm just wondering that's that's what i keep wondering and i don't know if you guys have any answers i um i see it as constantly being ensuring that you are aware and don't fall asleep and looking at it from the outside, stepping way back. And um, th that's, a, you have to be aware first, number one. 
and um, doing things of this nature like we are talking about it and just not uh, not being um, willing to compromise principles on it. And um, I think people, they, they cave because they want convenience, especially where technology is concerned, or they think the majority, the majority is doing it. So, you know, it has to be fine. It's what everyone does. It's easier. Um, and that's why you have to have a very strong sense of character and principle and um, just be able to take a larger perspective on it. I know as a parent of teens, it's, it's, it's hard, you know, with the cell phone thing, because I know that cell phones are doing harm. We, I think most of us know that, but to be, it's hard to be the one parent that won't allow their kid to have an, have a cell phone and the kids would feel disconnected, not having it because their friends are all on it. Their friends all have the phones. The friends are organizing, you know, get togethers or playing games together online. It's a way that, that kids connect now. I don't think I don't remember the last time any of our kids talk, actually had a conversation on the phone. It's all through, through texting. So it's, it's hard to be the one parent to not let your kids do that. And then the kids feel a disconnect and they just want to fit in with their peers. Right. No, that's, that's understandable. Yeah. I, I don't have human kids, but um, yeah, it, if I did, I, I would instill in them that I would explain to them why. Um, why, you know, I didn't want them to use the phones. And I wish, I wish we could have a law, you know, um, signed so that no one under the age of 21 could have a phone. We, except for the only reason they could have a phone would be, you know, dial up emergency. No, no connection to why, you know, Wi-Fi or any of that. Um, I think it would be wonderful. Just bring back those flip phones. Get rid of the, it's yes, the smartphone I, I, that's the problem. Yes, it is. I still have, I have two phones, one for business and it is a flip phone. And I prefer that because the other is just, it's an intrusion. One of the things you mentioned in the book, um, you referred to trans as, as a third gender. Do you think that's the way forward in terms of um, how we fit socially and, and solve some of the problems like, like bathrooms or um, women's rights or various things? To a certain point, because again, that could be misconstrued, third gender, you know, then they'll want on licenses, maybe they'll just put an N for neutral, <laughs> you know, it, it could really go down a slippery slope. I still like to think of it as a hybrid. Um, but in terms of what you were saying, yeah, I don't think that we should mess with, you know, the rights of women, men, and bathrooms, imposing that on them. It's it upsets me. I can, and I can understand where the majority would be upset, you know, as a, as a biological woman or even as a biological man, you know, if you have someone who's trans and clearly not passing come into your restroom, I mean, it's, I would be, you know, it, it, it'd be uncomfortable. Um, and it's just, it's, it's, again, it goes back to what I said about forcing tolerance on someone. You're not going to force it. You can't. There will always be people who, you know, they they don't want this or that, and there's intolerance, and they have a right to that intolerance. Um, you know, so it's um, there has to be a certain middle ground, and as I said before, the majority cannot expect or demand that the majority caters to them. That's not the way to go about it. It's not about catering. 
And um, I, I, for one, do not expect, you know, laws to be changed on my behalf, especially this is a whole other subject. We don't have to spend time on it, but, you know, uh, transgenders and sports and everything. I just, it's, it upsets me because I'm like, it's not fair to the females, especially. It's different if you're female to male and you want to be on the boys team, then it's more level. But if you're a male and you're identifying as female and you want to be on the girls team, that's not fair in any way. And I don't think it should be condoned. Create a third team. Um, so it's just, I can see where parents are outraged or, or young, you know, teen girls are upset and they have a right to be. Um, but, you know, who am I, I in the grand scheme? <laughs> they I, I didn't ask what, me. <laughs> I think where we're, it's such a tricky subject to, 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 to um, discuss and people like to pretend that there isn't a difference between, you know, going from female to male and going from male to female socially. These are these these two things have very different impacts on the people and facilities around us. And and I think it's it, it's it doesn't do anybody any good to pretend that it's the, that just being trans is the same issue, um, because because like like you said, like we we don't really infringe on on men our uh, you know we don't we don't jeopardize their safety we don't jeopardize their physical performance you know in, in a competitive sense um and also we typically pass you know more yes. more easily and and even if we didn't again men aren't going to perceive us as a potential danger to them so when when we talk about bathrooms it you know we can say you know if you pass be in you know we should we should obviously not be using the women's bathrooms because we are going to make them very uncomfortable and potentially feel unsafe um but then with with on the reverse side of that is is the, the reality is is trans women most do not pass you know and and that and that that's where that's where i see the the, the need for a third space is I know, like I know what you're saying it's like we don't need to be catered to and that you know special facilities are created but I don't know with the with the trans women it's it's a different scenario I think just because a lot of times they don't pass but then it's also yeah. like should they continue using the men's room I mean that just doesn't seem I don't know it's it's a it's a trickier situation uh when applied to them right and in those situations I would say and I briefly touch upon it in my booklet in public settings use the family restroom or the handicap restroom or in a school setting when it's clearly defined as you know boys girls you know have an agreement with the um nurse's station or the office where you go there because honestly in a high school there should typically be maybe one or two individuals maybe that identify truly as gender dysphoric and trans if you have a whole mass of them like an amoeba 10 15 that's just not normal as we've discussed this whole time that's that's a trend um so in, in a lot of schools, we're looking at like 25%. Yeah, that's, I, that is alarming. Every yeah. bell should be going off. Like this is a contagion. This is not okay. Yeah. There was one teacher that reached out to us and said that 50% of her classroom identified as something other than cisgender. Oh my God. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm laughing because it's so absurd. It's frightening, but if you don't laugh at it, you just, you would be you'd lose your mind it's, i just it's can't I, 
it's like for these kids, obviously, it's just it's just an identity label. It's like 50 percent of the class are punks or goths or whatever. It's like that's what's going on. But yes, all the administrators and all the teachers have been told they have to take this seriously. And, the, and like that's what I can't understand is like, how do these adults in these schools who, you know, have some degree of developmental psychology understanding have, you know, they, they obviously work day in and day out. They know how kids work and yet they're going, yes, yes. Okay. Everybody has uh, the opposite sex pronouns. It's like, right. Like why, why, <laughs> why? I, I can only chalk it up to cowardice. That's the only thing that I can make sense of this with is, is absolute, well, not like cowardice. I mean, they want to keep their jobs, obviously. They have families to feed, whatever. But it's just like the only reason this continues to go on is because these adults who know better are facilitating it. Yes. And there's it's it's become polar, you know, the polarity of it. And again, there it's demonized. If you don't go with it, you know, this new um what what do they call it? I'm, I'm losing my words right now. But if you don't go with this new script that's put out there, so to speak, then you're, you know, you're prejudice or, um, you know, you're extreme because you question. And that whole mental concept, the, the turning on each other, it's just it's pervasive right now. And it's very um, disturbing, to say the least, because if you do maintain your ground, chances are you will lose your job which is so wrong in a thousand ways. And um, so I understand, like you were saying, why people, you know, they want to hold on to their jobs so they don't speak up, even though they know this is not right. People have to band together on it, but it's very difficult to do that. Do high school still read The Crucible? Because that'd be helpful. (laughs) Yeah, that's probably been banned. (laughs) I think the book I Lord remember. of the Flies has been banned. Has yeah. it? Oh no, that's a favorite book of mine. mine Tell me too. it hasn't. Oh my God. What next? Oh geez. Let me guess. Uh, yeah, of course. They don't want that one out there. <laughs> if they if they ban of mice and men, they're going to be hearing from me. That's my favorite book. So they better not do anything with that one. Yeah, it's I'd love to know who gets on these boards and, you know, decides for society. That's crazy times. Oh, yes, to say the least. That's why you just have to, like I said, I sometimes just sit there and I laugh. Because <laughs> um, the people who get really, really angry, that's not constructive. I can get upset, but why waste my energy in that, you know, that vein well thanks so much for uh coming on and talking to us stillman sure and um oh i'll leave you with this because i think it's an interesting exercise i often if i'm talking to people who think they may be trans or don't know i give them this scenario so you're familiar probably with the movie castaway with tom hanks right yeah Mm-hmm. Yep. Being alone on an island, cut off from everyone. So I, I ask these people, I say, well, what if you are on an island by yourself, cut off completely? How would you feel being in your skin? Would it bother you, you know, or would you just parade around completely with, you know, nothing on, loincloth? And it's interesting to see how a person responds because one, it's, it's going to, it'll answer, it'll address many questions. And so that's what I like to ask people. 
um, because if it doesn't bother them, then they're not trans and it's something external that's influencing them. But if they still are on that island by themselves and truly dysphoric and low, you know, really upset with their body and what's going on, then I usually say, yes, their dysphoria is internal. It's a great exercise to, for reflection. Yes. And it's a great movie. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is. I, you know, recently watched that. Yes. All right. Well, th- thank you for talking to me and I enjoyed talking to you and I'd like to talk to you more at some point, um, but uh, it's good to have that connection. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Transparency Podcast. If you enjoy our content, please help out our algorithm by hitting like or subscribe. If you'd like to make a donation, follow the link to our PayPal account. On behalf of the Gender Dysphoria Alliance, thanks for your support. <laughs>